Uh, We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Uh, Last week, we saw Jesus' heart for the little children as he called them to himself, and we saw how we, as his children, ought to have faith like them, dependent, humble faith. Well, Jesus and his disciples are about uh, to head off on their final journey to Jerusalem. And as they're headed off on their journey to Jerusalem, a man, a rich young man, a ruler, as Matthew calls him, uh, comes uh, running and drops to his knees before Jesus. This is our text this morning, uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Let's hear God's word. You can follow along uh, in your bulletins or in your Bibles or online if you are with us. Hear God's word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children, lands with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I ask that you would help me to be faithful Forgive my sin. By your Spirit, use my words and the word eternal to break into our hearts and transform us so that we might keep you, Lord Jesus, preeminent in our hearts and in our minds. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to this text, I think there are two things that I often, that oftentimes 
become the focal point of the text. We either make the text about the evils of wealth, or we see this text talking about legalism and justification by faith alone. And and I'm not saying that the text doesn't speak to those things, because I think it does speak to those things, but they don't get at the heart of this text. I don't think that's the most, you might say, crucial thing in the text. Absolutely, we need to address the issues of love of money. Absolutely, we need to be reminded that the gospel is a gospel of grace by faith alone in Christ alone, that there is nothing that we do that saves us. But this text is dealing with things that we desire or love more than anything else. It's dealing with our heart and the affection of our heart and what we consider to be most important. Things that we might call our first love. In the case of this rich young man, his first love is his wealth. And maybe, maybe that's the same for you. Maybe you are driven by gaining the treasures of this world and the security and power that comes through wealth. But maybe it isn't money stuff for you. I think we need to ask the question, what is it that I desire above all things? What is it that drives me, that motivates me? Where does my affection lie? Maybe it's companionship and relationship. Maybe it's prestige or fame. Maybe your love of children and family are preeminent. Maybe it's pleasure. There are so many things, very good things, that can drive us. And I think it's really important for us to ask, what do I desire above all else? And I would suggest to you that if it is anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, then we, when we are confronted with our, we'll just call them what they are, idols, when we're confronted with those things that capture our love and our affection, and somebody exposes it or the Lord exposes it to us, I think that oftentimes when that happens, we are confronted with a choice, just like this rich man was. Am I going to give it all up for the Lord Jesus, or am I going to follow the inclinations of my heart and walk away? And I would argue that more often than not, we choose the things of this world. But lest we get disheartened before the sermon even begins, Jesus offers himself as the all-satisfying treasure of heaven. And my hope is that this morning that you will consider him as all in all, as your first love. For he was the one who loved you first while you were still chasing all the baubles of this world. He loved you and he died for you. Friends, Christ is all in all. I want to consider this in three ways this morning. 
who is truly good. I want us to think about treasures on earth. And then I want us to conclude with that treasure of heaven, Christ, all in all. So those are the three things that I want to look at this morning. First, who is truly good? Um, <laughs> this is interesting. If we need to collapse the tent, I'm okay with that. Uh, uh, there is not a. Sp- there should be some spikes in the bag, but sorry for those online. We're having a bit of a uh, a challenge. God is breaking our idols. God is breaking our idols. There are, there should be spikes in both uh, bags. I'm not sure. Or you can take a... Nothing to distract one from preaching, like a flying away tent. You know, I, I, just as an aside, I think one of my idols is a church building. <laughs> I, uh, I long for that. And I think the Lord is teaching us something. That we can meet in a field without tents, without anything, and we can still worship the living God, that he is still our all in all. Well, the question is, who is truly good? The text begins with this young man rushing up to Jesus and kneeling at his feet and asking Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus begins his dialogue with this man by sidestepping the question for a moment and instead asks the question, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. Now, of course, in Jesus' words, there is irony in this, right? Um, Because, of course, he is the God-man standing before him. But when he asks the question to this rich young ruler, I don't think he's saying, look, I'm the good one because I am truly God. But what he's saying is he's posing a question in order that he might prick the conscience of this rich man. Why do you call me good? If I'm a teacher, a religious leader, a rabbi, don't you know that there is only one who is good, God alone? As we'll see in a moment, the rich young ruler or the rich young man thought of himself as good. He looked on Jesus as a religious leader and thought of him as good. But I think it's because at first blush, he he was thinking, okay, here is somebody that I can relate to. He's a rabbi. I'll show him the deference that is due him. I'll, I'll kneel before him and let him teach me because he's good. But I'm also good. And here's the interesting thing. The disciples, the people around this rich man would also have thought of this rich man as good. Why is that? Well, seems like from the text anyway, that he seems like an upstanding Jewish man. So there's that. You know, there were rich people that were tax collectors that defrauded people. So we'll see in a moment, at least in his heart, he doesn't believe he has done any of those things. But generally speaking, wealth was a sign of goodness in a person. The logic would go something like this. You're wealthy. Wealth is a blessing from God. God blesses those who are good. Therefore, you must be good. 
You see the logical train? And this is, of course, the opposite logic that was used with Job, right? With Job, it was he lost his wealth. Since wealth is a blessing, and by negation, it must be a curse if you lose it. God curses those who are bad. Therefore, Job is bad. You see the logic. This is kind of how the logic would go. So this young, rich young man who comes to Jesus, everyone around him would have said, Ah, here's a good man. It's interesting. I wonder if it's really any different today. Now, I don't think we use the moral language of goodness that the Jewish mind would have used. But wealth is certainly looked up to. And poverty is often looked down upon. Right? If you are wealthy, then you must have done well for yourself and done stuff that is good. You must be wise and you must have lots of uh, good connections and people must think well of you. You're, you're, you're a hard worker, whatever it is. We still do this today. It's not all that different. We look up to those who are wealthy. We assume that they're good and we look down on those who are poor. As a society. But there's something going on here in the heart of this young man. There's something niggling him, right? Something inside him that's telling him, I know I'm pretty good, but, but, but there's something else wrong. Why else does he come to Jesus? He wants confirmation. He wants affirmation. He wants to be told, yes, yes, you're good. Don't worry about it. You're going to go to heaven. You're going to inherit eternal life. Uh, you're a good man. But there was something niggling him. So Jesus begins to probe. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. And I can imagine he has his little checklist. Check. I'm not a murderer. Don't commit adultery. Nope. I'm faithful husband. Check. Do not steal. Nope. I am honorable in all my business dealings. Check. Do not bear false witness. Check. Do not defraud. Check. And as he looks over at Matthew, the former tax collector, he thinks, I'm not like one of those guys. I earn my money legitimately. Honor your father and mother. Check. I've done well for them. I take care of them. Check, check, check. The young man says, yup, I've checked all the boxes. So am I good to go? But then Jesus looks at him and he searches his heart, the probing eyes of Jesus. And the text says that Jesus loved him. Mark records this. Matthew and Luke don't record this, but, but Mark records this. Jesus loved him. It was, it was something sort of startling, I think, probably for Peter or, or Mark through Peter. He loved him. Maybe you're like this as a friend. You've had this experience, or maybe this experience has happened to you where you love somebody enough that you were willing to tell them something that was hard and painful. You were willing to go to them and say, brother, sister, friend, I love you and I want you to hear these words. What you're doing is wrong. 
exposing those things to light. It's compelled out of a deep love and concern. And that's what Jesus has here. He has a deep love and concern for this lost, rich, young ruler who in so many ways exemplifies what it means to be faithful. And yet he isn't faithful. His heart belies him. And so he looked on him and he loved him. And he was willing to be rejected by him in order to tell him the truth. Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Jesus got right at the heart of the issue. He's saying, let me show you that you are not good. There is only one who is good. No one is good except God alone. Not only is your wealth not a symbol of your goodness, but it is the very root issue. You have treasured the things of this earth above me and above others. Your problem is that you love money more than you love God and you love money more than you love others. More than you even, you come and fall at my feet, more than you even do desire to follow me. What does the man do? He walks away grieved. Sorrowful, the text says. We all know deep in our hearts that we don't have it all together. Our consciences will often wake us up at night or remind us that there's something not right. And the question is, what do you do with that? I think oftentimes we're a bit like this rich young ruler. We just need a slight adjustment. A quick fix. It's like getting your back adjusted at the chiropractor. If I go once a week, I'll be fine. He's coming to Jesus to kind of to tweak the, uh, the engine that he thinks is running smoothly. We think we're generally good people. Yeah, there's a few things that are problematic, a few slight imperfections. I know I don't always do things that I ought to do. I know that there are some issues, but generally speaking, I'm pretty good. I think this young man was hoping for a slight adjustment or word of encouragement. But he went to Jesus and Jesus exposed his heart because Jesus loved him. As painful a thing as it is, we need our hearts to be exposed to the light. It is only in coming to terms with the painful truth that there is no one who is good, no, not one that we have loved the things of the world more than we love God, more than we have loved our neighbor, that we can begin to see that Christ is all in all. The only one who is truly good. But I want to take a little more time to examine the things that we treasure above Christ. This brings me to my second point. The treasures... Of earth. Now it's worth noting that this is a specific call to a specific person that has a specific sin. He was exposing this man's heart issue, his love of money. And I say that just as an aside wealth in itself is not evil. Nevertheless, 
As we read earlier in uh, our service, it is the root of all kinds of evil. And I think it's important for us to consider this. Remember, I said this I don't think is at the very heart of the text, but it is a part of the text. And we need to consider what does it look like to treasure the treasures of this world. Jesus himself notes that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, I know that there's popular interpretation out there that tries to identify a certain gate going into Jerusalem that was called the eye of the needle that was hard to get camels through. But this saying is as clear as it sounds. The camel was the largest land beast that they had around them. The needle was as small a thing as you could imagine, and there was no possible way for a camel to get through an eye of a needle. It's as simple as that. It's impossible. Jesus' reasoning is quite simple. Money and stuff can have detrimental effect on our spiritual lives. It can give us a false sense of security and comfort, thinking that we no longer need anything. Most significantly, we can think when we have the world that we don't need God himself. Acquiring stuff and running after stuff consumes energy and time. What's the old saying? Time is what? Money. And so, if it's our all in all, if it's that thing that we need more than anything else, we will spend every waking hour and minute getting it. And what does that mean? It means that we push out our pursuit of God himself and our love of one another and our service to one another. Accumulation of wealth can puff us up. It can make us think that we are greater than God, that we are better than others. It can lull us into a sense of complacency, dull our desire for heaven. Now, I want to reiterate, it doesn't necessarily do these things. We see wealthy people in the Gospels. We see wealthy people in the Old Testament blessed by God who became a blessing to others. Abraham. We see somebody like Joseph of Arimathea, who gave up a prime spot for the tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wealth isn't necessarily cause these things. What causes it is sin in the heart that treasures it above Christ himself. And when Jesus said that, that it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, he confounded the disciples Because in their minds, to be wealthy was to be associated with goodness and with God's blessing and favor. As I've already mentioned, you can think of somebody like Abraham or Solomon or even Job after uh, he's restored. And so they're thinking, if it's hard for this man, for a rich man like this to enter the kingdom of heaven, how much harder is it for us, the average Joe?
They were missing the point. So the real root of the problem, it was about treasure and what we treasure. It's about disordered affection. It's about love of the world and love of all the things of the world. And it may be about money. But we treasure all sorts of things, don't we? There's all, there's all sorts of ways in which we, we treasure things. There are things that I think about that if I lost, what would it do to my faith? What would it do to my trust in God? If those things are lost, would I still believe? Those, when we start to ask that question, and the answer quickly becomes, I would resent God, I would be bitter at God, I would hate God, and then we have to ask the question, do I treasure that more than I treasure Christ himself? Because this is exactly what he challenges this young man with. He says, all right, here's the hard issue. I'm going to expose it. You love things. You love money more than anything else. Therefore, sell it all. Sell it all. Take the proceeds. Give it to the poor. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus will address this from another angle. He'll say, basically, whoever doesn't hate their family connections, and he uses very hard language, can't follow me. You have to love me more than you even love your brother or sister or spouse or child. Be willing to give it all up to follow me. The disciples weren't wrong to say, who is able to be saved? Who of us? Who is able to enter the kingdom of heaven? If that's the requirement, if it means giving everything up to follow Jesus, who of us is able? And this brings me to my final thought. The treasure of heaven. Who of us is able? What was Jesus' answer to this? Well, he said, he said, well, with man, it's impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. I mentioned earlier that the heart of this text wasn't about justification by faith rather than works, but it is part of the text. You'll notice that when the rich young man comes to Jesus, he says, Lord Jesus, what must I do? What must I do? What, where's the, the set of requirements that if I just follow this set of requirements, I will enter into the kingdom of God, that I will be enjoy eternal life. And Jesus is saying, if you think it's about what you do, you've got it backwards. Because it's not about what you do. It's about what God does. It's about what I do. We read in the very first few verses of this text that they were setting out on a journey. 
that they were going to Jerusalem. And of course, the Lord Jesus was going to Jerusalem with a set purpose. He was going to Jerusalem to lay down his life, to to bear the wrath and curse for sin on himself. He was going to Jerusalem to give himself up, to become the least of all. Jesus enjoyed heaven. Philippians 2, that he said, He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning, he didn't consider all the glory and honor and praise a thing to be held on to so tightly. But he let it go and he became a servant and he took on flesh and he became dust of the earth. And he went to the cross to serve and to die that we might have life. That we might enter into that eternal kingdom. Jesus gave it all up for you and I. Everything. And what he's saying to you and to me is, have you considered the cost yourself? Here at the end, Peter says, see, we've left everything. What a good boy we are, right? Peter's always ready to kind of be like, well, we're not like that guy who walked away from you, Lord. We gave everything up. We were fishing and we just laid down our nets. We left our families. We've come on this journey. We've suffered all sorts of things. We love you, Lord Jesus. We're all in. Now, you might think that Jesus at that moment would do what he usually does with Peter, which is rebuke him. He might say something like, Peter, You think you're giving all up, but when it comes down to it, you're going to run away just like this rich man. He doesn't say that, though, does he, here in the text? Instead, he says these words. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. He's saying, yes, yes, if you give all up, Peter, that's right. Give it all up for the sake of me, for the sake of the gospel. But we can oftentimes think in terms that Jesus is trying to have us suffer for nothing, right? Like, okay, we'll give everything up for Jesus and we'll suffer and that's just the Christian life and it's all about suffering. But he says, no, you're right. You give everything up to follow me. But in the end, you gain all. That's what he's saying. You gain everything. I will bless you in ways that you can't imagine. But he goes on and he says, you will Receive eternal life. And what is eternal life? Friends, eternal life is Christ himself. It's enjoying Christ who is all in all. Preeminent. The one who deserves all glory, honor, and praise. He's ours. 
as we wrestle with this question that I posed at the beginning of the sermon, where is your affection? I think oftentimes, in all honesty, we come to that with a hard answer. I don't know. It's mixed. I love Jesus, but I really love these things. And if I lost them, I don't know. Apostle Paul said, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And we look at that and we think, that's a high calling. Who is able to do this? Who can possibly do this? Who can possibly follow in those footsteps and say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To lose my life, even if I know I'll be saved in the end, how can I do that? It seems so hard to let go of the treasures of this world, to hold them loosely. It's impossible. It's impossible in your own strength and in your own power. But what is impossible with man is possible with God, for all things are possible in him. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly gave up all that we might have eternal life. He loved us while we were still loving the mud pies of this world. And he laid his life down. He gave up all. And he gives you all. For he gives you himself and all the treasures of heaven. Friend, you may be here this morning questioning whether you're going to walk away sad and dejected, thinking that the call is too impossible. Don't walk away. Don't walk away. Put your trust in the one who faithfully gave all for you, who by his spirit will help you love him more day by day, putting off all those other treasures and holding them loosely as those blessings of God, but not those things that are ultimate while holding and clinging and grasping to the one who is preeminent, who is all in all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Throw yourself on him. Cast yourself on him. Run to him. Treasure him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.